So we are continuing our series of messages this morning from the Gospel according to Matthew, and we are, uh, by God's grace, at the end of Matthew chapter 14 uh, this morning. You can find our text on page 975 of your pew Bibles. If you're using that to follow along, please use uh, that or your own uh, Bible for that purpose as we work through it. If you're able, would you stand with me as we read from Matthew chapter 14 and verses 22 to 36 as our text for this morning. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of God. May he bless it to our hearts this morning. Please be seated. So in the previous text we looked at last week, we found our Lord seeking out some time away from the crowds. And to do that, he had gotten into the boat with his disciples and had tried to come to this remote, lonely, solitude place. The problem is, when he got out of the boat, he found that he had got, not gotten away from the crowd, but that they had actually preceded him to the place on foot, and they were waiting for him when he arrived. And we find that Jesus then immediately sets aside his own needs and provides for them, healing them, teaching them, and finally bringing them, providing them bread in the wilderness for over 5,000 people. We noted at that time that this was, in a broad sense, to confirm to them that he was indeed Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, the one who gives his people bread in the wilderness. And as he told the people in John's Gospel, John 6, later on the other side of the sea, that he did this so that they would understand that he was indeed the one sent from heaven to be the bread of life, the bread that would bring eternal life to the world, to all who would spiritually feed on him by faith. Now, the spectacular events we've just read about in our text today, we need to understand, flow 
as that word gets used three times in this text, immediately out of those events of the story from last week. We will see Jesus finally find that quiet time that he has been seeking, and we will see what he chooses to do with that time. And we want to look at the text under three topics, three headings, seeking solitude in verses 22 to 24, seen in his divine glory in verses 25 to 33, and seen and sought merely for his usefulness in verses 34 to 36. First, seeking solitude. Again, we remember as we come to this passage that it seems Jesus had withdrawn, gone away to this lonely place in an attempt to get away from the crowds. And failing that, he ministered to them, and before evening came, he performed this spectacular miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 with just five loaves and two little fish. I pointed out last week that Matthew, I guess I would have to say intentionally, doesn't really tell us the reaction of the crowd to that miracle like he does so often. But I do think as we work into the text for today that it's worth briefly considering the crowd's reaction to that in light of what the Apostle John tells us in his gospel in chapter 6 and verses 14 and 15. Uh, remember that the disciples early in the afternoon had come to Jesus with all this healing going on and had told Jesus, send the crowds away. We don't have any food here. They're all hungry and there's distance, villages are distant from here. Let them go away so they can find food and take care of themselves. Jesus, on the other hand, said, no, they don't have to go. You give them something to eat. And when they protest, all they have are five loaves and two fish. He tells them, bring them to me. And of course, he feeds them in the miracle. The point was the disciples wanted to send them away and Jesus didn't want to send them away at that point. And yet when we come to the text today in verse 22, notice what Matthew says. Immediately, in other words, as soon as that miracle was finished, Jesus, notice the word, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Now that word that we see translated in the ESV as made the disciples get into the boat is a strong one. It really means to compel them to get into the, it's almost as if Jesus is sort of pushing and shoving them into the boat and saying, all right, get in here and move to the other side of the sea. Go there before me, I'll catch up with you. What's going on? Why, when he was so reluctant to have the crowds leave a little while ago, is he so urgent to have first, the, well, the crowd is going to leave, but the disciples need to leave before the crowd. Well, John tells us in his gospel that when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now remember, each gospel writer is telling us about these events from his own perspective for a particular purpose, so they both include or exclude certain details, but when you kind of put them together, we find that the crowd right away starts thinking, wait a minute, a guy with this kind of power who's been telling us all about a kingdom that he's brought here must be the king. Let's make him king. And they are ready to go grab him and forcefully take him to Jerusalem and crown him as the king of Israel, which of course will lead to a revolt against the Roman Empire and 
in their view, Israel becoming the prominent, preeminent nation God always intended it to be in his promises, right? But Jesus knows that's not the kingdom that he's been preaching to them about. In fact, he could have said to them the same thing he will say later to Pilate as he stands before Pilate and when he's asked if he's a king, I am, you said rightly, but my kingdom is what? It's not of this world, not a worldly kingdom like you are part of. And so Jesus takes his disciples and essentially forces them to get into the boat first and sends them away. Why does he does that? Well, he does that because his disciples have many of the same misconceptions that the crowds have about his messianic role in this world. They also, at least to some degree, think that he is heading for Jerusalem to be seated on a physical throne and rule over the nation. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And I think he wants to get them out of there before they get caught up in the fervor of the crowd and add to all of that. And then as soon as they're in the boat and moving away, he dismisses the crowd without question. One point we want to note here is that Jesus is firmly in control of this situation. One guy, well over 5,000 people, maybe 10, 15, 20,000 people, but he's firmly in control even when they want to take him by force and make him king. What this does, though, is that it finally allows Jesus to get that solitude that he was looking for, does it not? Because we're told that the next thing he does is he goes up on the mountain. And what is he going to take and use that time for? He's going to pray to his father. He's going to spend that time in prayer. And so Matthew tells us that when evening came, now, again, exactly what time that means, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, Somewhere probably in that area, Matthew tells us that Jesus was there alone. Remember, he had come apart by himself, although with his disciples, to this place. But now, there's a sense in which he is really alone. The disciples have gone in the boat, the crowds have gone away on foot, and he is, as Matthew says, alone there. But notice what it says next. But by this time, the boat... Which boat? Well, the one his disciples are in is by now a long way from land and it's in trouble because although they were supposed to cross right over, which should have taken a short period of time, they have run into a strong headwind that is driving the waves and they can't make any headway. They're caught in the middle of the lake and are rowing their hearts out and probably have been for hours by the time this story ends. So there's a sense in which Jesus is alone on the mountain and the disciples are alone in the middle of the lake, alone in the sense of being without Jesus. Now, when we think about that, there's a tendency in all of our hearts and lives, I think, that whenever pressures build up on us, whenever we find difficult times that we're facing in our lives, even when just the busyness of our lives presses in on us, there is a a real sense in which we tend to fall away from the very things that hold us right? We tend to find ourselves way too busy to take time to go apart and go up on the mountain and seek time to pray to God. We tend to be just too busy rowing the boat and doing the things that we need to do and we get caught up and we are in distress. Think about the fact that 
back in chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, Jesus had been teaching about the proper approach to prayer. And he said then in that passage that what the Father really desires is not for us to go out and stand in front of everybody and just pray out loud to get everybody's attention. He said, the Father wants you to go into your closet, into your private area, and spend time in prayer with him in private. But how many of us have found that as we go through those difficult times in our lives that we end up doing that less and less, right? We end up caught up in all the problems instead. We're in a sense giving up our source of strength in doing that. You understand that prayer is one of the means of grace that God has given us so that we can be in communion with him and he can pour grace into our lives through that means of grace. Notice Jesus' example here. When all of the pressure is done, what does he do? He goes up on the mountain with the express intent of praying to his father. Why didn't he just sit down on the nice green grass where everybody else had been sitting and say, okay, finally, like oh, we do often, right? We've been doing something really busy. We're so exhausted. You finally just sit down and look at the kind of mess around you and just relax and begin, hopefully, to pray. But he doesn't do that. He goes up on the mountain and Notice, after sending everybody away and doing that, he spends arguably most of the night on that mountain in prayerful communion with his father. We know that because he begins as evening comes on, and it's not going to be until the fourth watch of the night that he goes to his disciples. Now, what I wanted you to think about in terms of this is, Remembering that our Lord is both fully human and fully God. We're going to see that God part pretty clearly in a little while. But remember that as all this happens, he's also fully human. What do you think helped prepare him in terms of his humanity to go down to that seashore with all the wind and the waves that were rocking and rolling everywhere and begin to calmly step out onto the water and begin to walk out into the middle of the lake in the dark. A life of prayer. A night of prayer has strengthened his faith and prepared him to be able to do what he is about to do. And so we see this idea then of, of the seeking of solitude. As we go into the next point, Remember, this is about him being seen in his divine glory. And I talked about the time that's being spent here. The, the, Matthew's using the, the Roman division of time to keep track of things here. The Romans divided the night into four watches of three hours each. So six to nine, nine to 12, one to three in the morning, and then three to six in the morning. And so as evening came on, that's likely in that first block of six to nine, um, somewhere in there, probably on the early part of that, that Jesus becomes alone and begins his prayer time. Matthew presents again Jesus as being alone and in a sense the disciples as being alone. But part of what I think we should understand here is, is that really true? Are either one of them really alone? After all, on that mountain, Jesus is communing with someone, is he not? He's speaking intimately with his father all night long. And so if you were to ask Christ if he were alone on that mountain, I think he would have said, are you kidding me? How could I possibly have been alone? Why is he on a mountain, by the way? Again, not on the plain. 
Why does he go to the mountain? Well, in a biblical sense, mountains are a place to meet with God. Eden, we understand from Scripture, was situated on a mountain. Sinai, where God met with his people and commissioned them as his nation, that's a mountain. Zion, where Jerusalem is located, is a mountain. Mountains are typically places where God meets with his people. But I think there also is another reason why Jesus is up on that mountain all night long praying. The mountain's alongside the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's just sent his disciples across the sea in a boat, and it's run into a terrible storm. And what is he able to watch as he's on top of that mountain praying all night? I think he's able to keep track of where his disciples are. They're never alone. Christ is overseeing them constantly through this whole vigil of the night. And think about this from the disciples' perspective. This has been a really long day for them. They've already crossed the Sea of Galilee once. They've had a full day of ministry and healing, and they've helped, those of you, particularly the ladies who helped serve dinners, um, they've helped serve over 5,000 people, maybe as many as 20,000 people. They have been working hard all through this day. And now they have been fighting in vain for several hours, rowing, trying to make headway against this strong wind and the waves that accompany that wind. They must be absolutely exhausted as this fourth watch of the night comes along. Remember, we're talking about 3 to 6 a.m. now. They must be exhausted, and there must be a sense in which they feel alone. Yes, I know there are 12 of them in the boat, but do you remember there was another incident where they were in the boat and a terrible storm came up, and they thought they were all going to die? They didn't quite feel as alone then, although they felt desperate because they had somebody else in the boat with them, didn't they? Jesus, he was sleeping, which they didn't like, but he was there, and they could go to him. At this point, there's a sense in which they probably feel cut off from Jesus. The question is, are they? Are they really? See, Matthew tells us it was in the fourth watch of the night from 3 to 6 a.m. when Jesus came to them on the water. And again, the first thing you want to ask yourself is, well, how in the world did he do that? Well, Matthew tells us he was walking on the water. Oh, of course. What? Nobody walks on the water. Which is exactly why many people try to explain away this miracle by saying that what Jesus was actually doing was the disciples were in close to land and he was walking on a sandbar and making his way across the sandbar to them. No, you notice Matthew tells us they were a a long way from land. The other writers will tell you they were in the middle of the sea. And Matthew specifically says he was walking on the water. But that's impossible, right? Which is one of the main reasons why when they see him walking toward them on the water, one of the last things that ever comes to their mind is, oh, Jesus is coming to say hello. They never would have expected that. It never would have occurred to them. Instead, they believe that what they are seeing is the restless ghost of some poor sailor who's drowned probably in just such a storm as they're in, probably like they're going to do in the next few minutes. And they are terrified. 
Matthew says they cried out in fear, terror. Actually, the word that is used there can mean that they screamed out in terror and fear, which you could imagine at three or four o'clock in the morning in the dark in the middle of that storm out on the lake when you see that kind. What would you do? How would you react? But notice Jesus doesn't lead them in their terror. First, he immediately made them get in the boat and leave, but now he immediately spoke to them saying, take heart. It's I. Don't be afraid. I put in your bulletins a passage from Isaiah chapter 41, verses 8 to 17. And part of what I think we're supposed to get. Remember, these guys and the people they're writing to are steeped in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 41, God is speaking to his people. He calls them Israel and Jacob, but we understand in the New Covenant that's talking about us. And notice he says in verse 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not, be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And then swing down to the next highlighted portion I've got there, verse 13 and 14, where he says, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, what? Fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. So when Jesus, out in the middle of this distressing situation, stands there and says, Fear not. Take heart. Who does he sound like? Sounds like God speaking to his people. And God does that all through the scriptures, that same general message over and over again given to his people. Now, we aren't told this by Matthew, but it almost seems to me as if Jesus had paused in his walking in order to make this announcement of encouragement to his disciples. A short distance probably from the boat, but had stopped possibly to make this announcement. And, and we get to Peter's account, and Matthew's the only one that tells us about this story about Peter walking on the water. And the honest truth is that a lot of people are often critical toward Peter here. They'll often say things like, there goes Peter again. He's got to make it all about him. Here comes Jesus walking on the water, and Peter says, hey, if he's doing it, I've got to do it too. This looks really good. I've got to try this. Tell me to come to you, Lord, so I can do it. I don't know. You read Matthew with me. Did it sound to you like Matthew was in any way being critical of Peter's behavior here? Did he put it in any kind of a negative light? I didn't notice it. It doesn't come to me that way. To be honest with you, I suspect that with all the fear that these men have been going through and all of the exhaustion that they have been feeling and now the profound relief that is beginning to flood into them at the fact that their Lord has come to them, albeit by a very strange and supernatural way, I think Peter just wants and needs to be with Jesus in that moment. I think being in the boat isn't enough for him. You will remember there's going to be a later point where Peter's out in a boat and the Lord is on shore after his resurrection. When Peter realizes it's him, what does he do? 
He jumps into the water so he can get to the shore before everybody else because he can't wait to be with Jesus. And notice what happens in this story. In my mind, I break this into two parts. As the apostle, Peter hears Jesus command him to come, and as the apostle, he gets out of the boat, and he begins to walk across the water. Now, it sounds confident, but I have to, I have to guess that he's probably pretty fearful while he's doing all of this. But he is walking to him, and Matthew says he actually sort of came to Jesus. That says the apostle. But when he gets almost to Jesus, he begins to think as the fisherman. And he remembers there's a reason why fishermen use boats to fish. Because we can't walk on water. Uh Uh-oh. And he focuses, instead of on Jesus, he focuses on the wind and the waves. And as soon as he does that, what happens? He sinks. Okay, but then look at verse 31. Beginning to sink, he cries out, Lord, save me. And what are we told? Jesus, again, third time now, immediately stretches out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Doubt's probably a good enough word to use there, but if you realize that what that word doubt means is to waver. It means not to be fixed on something, but to be sort of vacillating back and forth. Another way to put it is to be of two minds. And that's why I tend to think of this as Peter the Apostle and then Peter the Fisherman. I think those two perspectives on this situation were competing with each other and the Fisherman won. Which is why as he wavered and doubted and looked at the circumstances, he sunk. Again, don't we also, like these disciples often in the difficult situations we face, do we not often feel like we've been cut off from God, cut off from Christ? Either we don't have access to him or we don't deserve access to him or he doesn't want anything to do with us anymore. Do we sometimes in those difficult times in our lives feel unseen and adrift in the middle of the storm? And if by some biblical chance, in those hard times, we do sort of catch a glimpse of Jesus by faith and begin to say, oh yes, the Lord, I can turn to him, we may attempt to go to him in faith for comfort, for strength, but don't we also find that we ourselves, like Peter, are just far too doubting, wavering of two minds? Don't we often, as we start toward Christ, instead find our minds turning back to the difficult circumstances, the pressures, the problems, the failures, the whatever? And as we do that, who do we lose sight of? Christ. And what happens to us? We begin to sink even further. Overwhelmed by the distressing circumstances we're facing and falling into despair. But we need to understand from this passage that Jesus never leaves his people alone. He never left these disciples alone for a moment that night. He always comes to us in our distress. And notice from this passage what else he always does. He 
He always bids us to come to him in our distress. His reaction to Peter isn't, well, Peter, you know, this is something that takes a little practice to get down. His response to Peter is immediate, come. What did he tell people earlier? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Peter, you look weary and heavy laden. Come. He always bids us to come to him in our distress. And guess what he other also always does? He always reaches out to save us when our faith isn't enough. When our faith is little. And so from this passage, we learn that we must, especially in those hard times, learn to focus our hearts and minds on Christ. On who he is and the promises he's made to us and his faithfulness to us. And we need to act out of single-minded faith in him. Now, Matthew tells us that as soon as Jesus and Peter stepped into the boat, that the storm ceased. Now, remember, in that other boat and storm situation, Jesus was already in the boat, and he commanded the storm to stop, and it did. But now he doesn't even have to issue a command. All he has to do is step in the boat, and his very presence stills the storm. By the way, John also adds in his gospel account that the storm ceased, and guess what? Immediately, there's that word again, the boat was at the place on shore where they were planning to go. In other words, somehow transported directly to Gennesaret. But there's also another major difference between this boat storm episode and that previous boat and storm episode. Do you remember when Jesus commanded the wind and waves be still and everything ceased? The disciples immediately had a question. Remember what it was? What kind of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? What well, do you notice when the storm ceases and the winds and waves stop at this point? There isn't a question in their minds and hearts anymore, is there? They don't ask what kind of man he is. What they do is they get down on their knees and bow down before him, and they say, truly, you are the Son of God. They recognize him, finally. Now, granted, limited, but they recognize him for who he truly is. Remember, up to this point in Matthew's gospel, the only people who have called Jesus the Son of God is Jesus, my Father, my Father, my Father, God, this is my beloved Son, and who else? Demons. You're the Son of God. Have you come to torment us before our time? Nobody else has been calling him the Son of God. Although Jesus has been patiently revealing himself to be exactly that through the miracles he's performed, his mastery over every illness there could possibly present itself to him, his mastery over every demon who possesses anyone around him, his mastery over the elements of nature so that he can calm storms in an instant, so that he can provide food out of a small amount, his mastery over death itself when he can raise the dead to life. 
Nobody's been recognizing through those miracles who he is, though, have they? And yet, finally, some people, his very inner circle that he has committed himself to so closely, are beginning to truly see him for who he is. Now, granted, that's going to wax and wane over time. There are going to be times when they get it more and other times when they get it almost not at all. But they will be growing in that understanding of him and that trust in him for who he is, just like us, right? Because we do the same thing, do we not? There are times where we are just sure who Christ is, and there are other times where it's like, well, I don't know. I mean, how could somebody do those kind of things? And I haven't been feeling power lately. And... But we should ask ourselves, what is it that led the disciples in this situation to this recognition that Jesus is the divine Son of God? as God himself worthy of their worship. We already noted last week the feeding miracle, which encouraged them to see him as the God who provides the bread from heaven. But there are some other passages we could think about. Job in chapter 9, verse 8, is describing God in that chapter. And in verse 8, he says that God is the one who alone stretched out the heavens and did what? Trampled the waves of the sea. God alone is the one who does that. Psalm 77, 19, speaking of God, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Isaiah 43, 16, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. God is the one who walks on the waters. No one else. And again, these people are just saturated with the Old Testament. Also, Jesus identifies himself to his disciples. Take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. That phrase we see translated as it is I is actually in the Greek two words, ego eimi. Those two words are the same ones that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses meets with God at the burning bush and he says, who am I supposed to tell them sent me to them in Egypt? God says, tell them, ego me, tell them I am, has sent you. Now, granted, those two words can be used by ordinary people. I mean, the husband can come home at the end of the day, open the door, and the wife can say, who's there? And he can say, it's me. But in this situation, where Jesus has just walked across three or four miles of water in the midst of a storm and allowed one of his disciples to walk to him as well, pretty hard not to see those words as pointing to his deity, to him being God who says, I am. He also stretched out his hand, his arm, to save Peter. Psalm 18, 16, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. Psalm 144, 7, stretch out your hand from on high, rescue me and deliver me from the many waters. Psalm 107 that we used earlier, verses 29 and 30, he made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad that the waters were quiet. And then notice the last phrase, and he brought them to their desired haven. That phrase from John sounds pretty pertinent at that point. 
See, your Lord Jesus, again, understand this from this text. Take heart. Don't be afraid. Your Lord Jesus, although fully human, Matthew is confirming for us, is very God of very God. He is in sovereign control of everything. Yes, including your life and every circumstance in it. Have faith in him as your God and Redeemer, as these passages have pointed out. And remember this, though. It isn't our faith that saves us. It wasn't Peter's faith that saved him, was it? It was Christ. Peter's faith was enough to get him in a direction, but it wasn't enough to get him all the way. And he sunk, and it was Christ who reached out and saved him. And we are the same way. When our faith isn't enough, and it almost never is going to be, we too are people of little faith. It is Christ who saves us. That's where our confidence, our faith, is. Now, being seen and sought for his youthfulness in the last few minutes here. Interestingly, Matthew concludes this chapter with this very brief account of what happened when they landed in Gennesaret, which, by the way, is like three miles south of Capernaum. It's an area where Jesus would have been known because of all the miracles he'd been doing in that area for a long period of time now. He would have been famous. His fame would have reached that area. And we see that because as soon as they land there, the men also recognize Jesus. But notice they don't recognize him apparently as the Messiah, the king of the kingdom. They don't also recognize him as truly you are the son of God. What they recognize him as is the one who has the ability to heal anybody that you bring. And so as soon as they see him, they send everywhere in the region and have every sick person that can come be brought to him so they can be healed. And Jesus, there's something different about this healing episode. It's a mass healing episode. We've seen a number of these. There's usually no big comment about them, but there's something different about this healing episode, isn't there? These men come to Jesus and they implore him. Perhaps it's because they can look on the faces of Jesus and his disciples and see the sheer exhaustion just clinging about them from the night they've been through. Maybe they feel some gesture of sympathy toward them for how tired they are. And they implore Jesus, you don't have to do anything. Just let these people do what? Touch the hem of your garment. That's all they have to do. Just let them touch that and let them be healed. And you notice what Jesus does? He permits it. Without a single command issuing from his mouth, without, without a gesture of any kind, like spitting in the mud and putting mud on eyes to heal blind, without any of those things and without even a touch of his tender hands on anyone, every single person who came and touched his garment was healed. Now, I would also point out to you, by the way, if you move forward into the book of Acts and look at Acts chapter 5, 15 and Acts 19, 12, you'll see that this is another piece of Christ's authority and power that he delegated to his apostles. Remember, in Acts um, 5, 15, we're told that Peter walks through town and anybody that his shadow fell upon was healed. 
Paul is out ministering, and as he's ministering, people are picking up the aprons and the face napkins he was using to wipe the sweat away, and they're taking them off, and as soon as their loved ones touch them, they're healed. This is power like no one has seen before. And and through all of that, I think finally there's a serious caution contained in this text that I think is particularly highlighted by these closing verses. See, these people here in Gennesaret show us that it is entirely possible to be very awed by Jesus and by his power and by his authority. They clearly know what he's capable of, even just let him touch But you can be awed in a tremendous way by that, and yet you can be not brought to saving faith in him through it. On the other hand, in a somewhat similar way, the disciples up to this point have shown us that it is possible to be truly saved by him, and yet not really be awed as much as you should be to realize who he really is. What all those miracles that awe you so much are really saying about him and his true identity. And so as we look on these two groups of people, I think part of what we're to understand coming out of this text is that we need to be seeking through utter dependence upon the Holy Spirit, through prayer and through God's word, to seek to be transformed from being people of little faith who don't recognize Christ all the time for who he is and don't turn to him the way we should. Instead, to be people who have steadfast faith in the steadfast love of our God and Savior is found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace to us in Christ. Thank you for these narrative accounts you give us in your word that help us to be able to see not only Christ displayed in all his glory, because we need that so much in this world that denies him, but also to see the disciples and their sometimes stumbling way of going from little faith to great faith and back to little faith again so that we can see that we're not unlike them and that you stretched out your hand and saved them and you loved them and you kept them and you will do the same for us. Help us to rest in those promises, to grow in grace, to be people of prayer, to be people of faith. We ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.